Over the course of years after that, my understanding of the gospel has grown deeper, and my passion for God's kingdom has grown wider. And along with my calling to ministry, I brought that when I moved back with my family six years ago to Vienna. And what I found the difference was that when I came back six years ago, I wasn't coming back to see what it could give me, this place. It was no longer a place that that I was hoping would exist for me and my family. Instead, I tried to look at this place through Jesus' eyes. You see, when you look through Jesus' eyes, you begin to notice different things. You stop at different places. And I think if Jesus were walking around here, there would be a lot about this place, this wider community, that Jesus would be really excited about. But even as high as it is on the best places to live in America... This is not heaven. And Jesus, I think, has a vision for any place that is bigger than the people can imagine. I think if Jesus were walking around here, he'd be seeing the sorts of people we see every day, but seeing them deeper, beyond the put-together smiles, to see the brokenness and need that lies behind a lot of that. Here's what I've thought, and here's what I've found. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, changes everything. Not just ourselves, our values and our identity, but our approach to everyone that we meet and every place we ever live or go. That is fundamental to who we are as a church. Now, as we celebrate our second anniversary, I felt like that I should probably cast vision and direction for the next couple of years. But seeing as how I don't have that well formulated, I thought a better move was just to look at Jesus. That's what we do every Sunday anyhow. We go back to Jesus, we look at the gospel, and we meet him again and see how he convicts and encourages and challenges and leads and calls us. Matthew 9 The calling of Matthew or Levi is a passage that fits this perfectly, that fits our vision for the church. For in it, we hear the gospel, we see Jesus, and we are called to something more and greater. So let's look at this passage and see how it might shape our own understanding and maybe even collectively our church moving forward. So the first thing is just looking at Matthew chapter 9 is what Jesus does. It says Jesus passed on from there. Now, he's in the city of Capernaum, which is where he generally lived and did most of his ministry. He passed on from there, and as he was walking along, Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and Matthew rose and followed Jesus. So Jesus is walking along, along the streets of a, of a small city, a small village that he had lived in for some time, and he passes by a tax booth that he had probably passed by dozens, if not hundreds of times, and he stops and he sees Matthew and he says, you come follow me. Matthew leaves everything. He drops, he rises from his place, and he follows Jesus. Now, in and of itself, it's not remarkable, but as many of you who've grown up in the church or been around a lot of sermons know, tax collectors are not good things to be in the Bible. You see, the tax collector was not just the way we think about the IRS. It had a much more hated and despised role in that ancient world. 
So the role of a tax collector was that the Roman occupying government would find local people that they would hire to raise and levy and gather taxes. That local tax collector was responsible for sending a certain sum back to Rome, but the tax collector could do whatever else he wanted, raising whatever else he wanted to. It was a system rife for abuse, and most tax collectors, or many, were familiar with that sort of abuse. They took liberties for their own gain and had the authorities of Rome behind them. Stories are told and recorded in rabbinic writings of people being beaten and executed for not paying their taxes. One tax collector who had a widow beaten because her family was not paying their taxes. Tax collectors were not looked on favorably in that day and age. They were considered to be greedy and abusive, traitors to the Jewish state. They were despised more deeply than anybody in town. Probably the best equivalent we could get at today would be something like a mafia boss, the sort of person where every business owner has to pay them a little something. They live in fear, but they also loathe them. Except this mafia boss happens to also be siding with the Nazi occupying forces. So not only is he somebody you have to fear, it's somebody you hate deeply because he is a traitor. One writing of a Jewish rabbi said, the Pharisees and the tax collectors represent the most godly and the least godly person one might meet in daily life. They were the least godly, most despised, furthest from the kingdom of heaven. And I wonder what sort of person might fit this picture for us today. Who is the least godly? Who is the furthest from Jesus? Because you could probably retell the story putting that person in place. And it might go something like this if we were just imagining. Jesus is walking along the rolling open plains of, of Wyoming. And there in the distance, he sees a man with a hunting rifle and he calls out, hey, Hey, Dick Cheney, it's me, Jesus. Come and follow me. And, and Cheney drops his gun and follows Jesus. And the next thing we know, Jesus is there is with, with Dick Cheney at the Tea Party convention. Or there's Jesus on an airplane flying into the airport. And it happens to be Moscow International Airport. And as he's walking through, he sees over in an enclosed area Edward Snowden. And he says, Ed, come and follow me. And the next thing we know, there's Jesus with Snowden and Vladimir Putin, probably with his shirt off, all hanging out, <laughs> trying to figure out who this Jesus is and what he has to offer. Or there's Jesus at the VMAs. And he says, hey, Miley, Miley, you want to come follow me? And a little embarrassed, she covers herself up. She follows Jesus, and the next thing you know, there's Jesus as Miley's guest at the Vanity Fair after party, meeting all the people that Miley wants to meet Jesus. You see, the tax collector was the furthest thing from Jesus you could get. Showing up in a party with tax collectors was the last place any religious person ever wanted to be seen. 
It was going to label you the sort of person that in respectable society you wouldn't want to be labeled. Jesus, walking along, stops and sees the local drug kingpin, the guy who's responsible for many deaths under his gang-style leadership, the one who funds the pimps and the prostitutes. And he says to that drug kingpin, come and follow me. And he drops his cash and his cocaine, and he follows Jesus. And the next thing you know, there's Jesus hanging out with him and the pimps and the prostitutes and the crackheads. Because these are the only people that this, this drug kingpin knows. And he wants them to meet Jesus too. What I want us to see is that Matthew, Matthew is the ultimate outsider, the ultimate outcast, the ultimate despised person who is as far from good and holy and righteous and Jesus as we could ever imagine. And that's just the sort of person that Jesus stops for and has dinner with. And Matthew responds in full. We get that Matthew doesn't just rise and follow Jesus, but that he also throws a party for Jesus. We read in verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, to recline at table in that day and age, most commentators would suggest, it implies that it was a banquet. The average uh, Palestinian Jew didn't actually recline when they were eating the average meal, but only if it was Passover or some major festival or a wedding feast or a banquet in honor of a great guest. And so here they are reclining at table. So we know it's a great feast. And there's actually a parallel account in the Gospel of Luke where we read that Matthew, or Levi, his other name, made a great feast in his house. A great feast, a great expense, inviting everyone he could possibly know, killing the the calf and, and celebrating in major style. So this is a major way to honor Jesus. But it's not just to honor and worship Jesus because it says that many tax collectors and sinners were there. Matthew invited everyone he possibly knew and had a connection with. He wanted them to meet Jesus too. So there is Jesus with the tax collector and all the pimps and prostitutes and the disciples. And the Pharisees do what we're familiar with them doing, is they approach probably staying outside of the house, just calling to one of the disciples because they don't want to get inside and contaminate themselves. And they say, why is Jesus, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we've talked about this here before, but eating with someone in that day and age had covenantal overtures to it. It was akin to a marriage ceremony or, as we talk about today, a business contract being finalized. To eat with somebody created a social or spiritual bond. It was not necessarily legal, but there was something far deeper going on when you ate with somebody than than we do today. It implied respect and honor of the person you were eating with. It implied approval or acceptance of them. And so the Pharisees, as good religious people, challenged Jesus. Why do they challenge him? Because they want to expose his ungodly actions and they want to shame him publicly. But Jesus' rebuttal turns the tables on them 
exposing their ignorance and their failure to follow God's calling. They're the ones who end up humiliated. We read what Jesus has to say to them in verses 12 and 13. Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus turns the table on them and says, Why am I eating with these tax collectors and sinners? I'm a doctor. The doctor goes where sick people are. These people are sick and in need of healing. He then quotes Hosea, which is a slap in the face of a good Pharisee because it's as if to say, haven't you guys read Hosea? Don't you know that Old Testament book? Aren't you familiar? You should be, you, you know this, right guys? You know Hosea 6.6. 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, says the Lord. Or to translate that a little bit further, it's God telling the Israelites, I desire loving kindness and grace and generosity and forgiveness and mercy more than religious goodness. I desire loving kindness more than religious goodness. And in order, in order to interpret it, Jesus says, you, you want to know what this means, this passage from Hosea? It means this. It means I came to call sinners, not the righteous. You see, the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus is the Pharisees look at the tax collectors and sinners and can only see their impurities. Jesus looks at them and sees their need. And because they are the sort of people who acknowledge their need, Jesus can invite and call them in. He can heal, forgive, and save them. So Jesus is around the sorts of people who are most sick and needy. Years ago, when I walked the halls of Madison High School, I was a good 10th grade Pharisee. As a 10th grader, I, there were certain people I tried to avoid because I knew they would contaminate me. I was a Christian, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't hang out with those kids. By 11th grade, I was very involved in an organization called Young Life. Um, Young Life works in local schools to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to kids who don't have a, a church home. Well, I got involved with Young Life and even went to a Young Life camp. And at that Young Life camp, I was excited because a lot of my friends were going, but the only people I cared about going to hear about Jesus Christ were really those kids who were like me, the kind of kids who did pretty well in school, stayed out of trouble, cheered loudly at the games. And then a year later, the, the summer after I graduated high school, I spent a, a summer volunteering on the work crew at one of these Young Life camps. And I was surprised to learn about something at these Young Life camps that I had never noticed before, even though I'd been two or three times. They had what was called a smoker's pit. There was a place out back with a, a, a little can in the middle and rocks or logs sitting around where kids who were smokers could smoke a cigarette or two. That was scandalous to me. As a good Christian kid, that meant somebody who was too far gone to be at a place like a Young Life camp. But of course, I started to get it. These kids who were used to smoking a pack a day weren't going to show up for a week-long camp to hear about Jesus Christ. 
if there wasn't an opportunity for a cigarette at a break. And there they were sitting out there and Young Life leaders hanging out with them, not having a cigarette, but just talking to them. The gospel was for them? Jesus was, of course he was. I was so busy trying not to be contaminated that I never would have even thought about inviting some of those sorts to hear. But Jesus is not too busy. His mission was to repair the lives of broken people. Our story of Matthew being called is in Matthew 9. In Matthew 7, 8, and 9, all the surrounding context, what we see is Jesus intervening in broken people's lives. It's a blind man who is healed. It's a leper who is cleansed and finally allowed to enter society again. It is a woman who has been bleeding internally and separated socially who is healed by him. It is a demon-possessed man who is released from bondage to Satan. And it is a centurion, a Roman officer, whom Jesus interacts with and heals his servant. It's not that Jesus didn't come for the religious, but it's that those who are most broken are the ones who tended to be willing to admit their need of him. Go back with me, if you would, for a few minutes. Imagining what Matthew must have been thinking about Jesus before Jesus walked up to him that day. You see, Matthew was the tax collector, or one of the tax collectors in Capernaum. So he had lived in the very city that Jesus did most of his ministry. So he had probably heard Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, about finding peace with God, about being forgiven and brought into the family of God. And I bet for a long time, as he'd heard that story, he'd thought, I want that. I want to be part of that kingdom. But of course, I'm a tax collector. I bet he had been there a few weeks earlier when Jesus healed the paralytic and forgived his sins and probably thought, I, I, wonder, I wonder if he could give me new life. I wonder if he could forgive me. And my guess is, Matthew knew the Roman centurion who a chapter earlier had had his servant healed because the tax collectors and the Roman authorities were in cahoots. So there, there weren't many centurions and there weren't many tax collectors. They would have known each other. And a few chapters earlier, Jesus had healed a Roman centurion's servant, an outsider, a Gentile. Not only that, Jesus had executed his power in the life of an enemy a Roman officer. And I bet Matthew thought, I wonder, I wonder if that power could be available for me, a traitor to my own people. I'm not sure if any of you can identify with Matthew. It's possible that you would look around a place like this and wonder, when all these religious folk are going to find out you aren't one of them. Of course, if that's your case today, if you're just here visiting, if you're not really sure about this Jesus thing, look, it's okay. It's actually the outsiders who need to worry when Jesus is around, not the insiders 
It's not the, sorry, it's not the outsiders who need to worry, it's the insiders. See, it's the insiders are the ones who assume that because we know about God or we've done a lot of religious activity or we avoid, avoid moral sins that we're in. We're in because of our goodness. Jesus says again and again and shows and demonstrates that the only way to get in is through Jesus. Outsider or insider, having grown up in a church, we're walked in the doors for the first time. We all need Jesus. He's the only way in. So I wonder, what does Jesus' calling of Matthew and Matthew's response to Jesus tell us about what Jesus might be calling us to? Four things that I just want to point out. First, think about this. Jesus sees and calls Matthew a tax collector, and he goes to Matthew's house and spends time with Matthew's friends, other tax collectors and sinners. So what might this look like for us to fulfill this sort of thing? Well, it would suggest that like Jesus, we need to always be looking for those who aren't already here. We talk about that in our church, about being externally focused people, outward facing And in order to be the kind of person like Jesus who can look out and invite somebody to follow him, we need to be the sort of people who are aware of the ways that we are off-putting. Even things as simple as having insider and churchy language. I don't know how many of you have been in Christian circles for a while, but what happens is like a, a trade association, we start developing terminology that makes no sense to people outside of us. So I'm going to join my accountability group later today. What is that? Your tax group? Helps you figure out your accounting? Oh, this morning in my quiet time. Quiet time, that's what you put your kids in when they're naughty, right? Oh, my walk with God. It's, it's not going so well right now. Oh, does that mean you're not getting a mile or two in? You're only getting a half mile in every morning? What's a walk with God? Uh, part of my Lenten discipline, I'm going to... Lenten discipline? What is Lent and why would you want to be disciplined? All sorts of words and ways of thinking that create barriers to people who have no idea who Jesus is. And what I see with Jesus is he wasn't creating barriers unnecessarily. When he was with the Pharisees, he spoke their language. Okay, let's quote the Old Testament. But when he was with people like Matthew, he said, come and follow me and let's go hang out in your place. we're going to look like Jesus with Matthew and his friends, we need to be the sort of people who respect just how hard it is to believe in this Jesus. I mean, you might have believed in Jesus your whole life, but let's face it, to believe that a man 2,000 years ago died and rose for your sins and is the Son of God, that's going to take a miracle to believe it, which is exactly what happens anytime any one of us ever comes to believe it. It's a miracle. And so we need to respect the process of trying to figure out what it is to believe in this Jesus. And we need to be the sort of people who can actually make friends. I see one thing about Jesus is he was the sort of person you wanted to hang out with. And so if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to be the sort of people who can develop friends with people, even if they never buy into this Jesus that we seem to be selling. To live like Jesus in this scenario is to be wary of our Pharisee tendencies and to simply want to be friends with people 
and show them the Jesus that has called us. Second, I want you to notice something else besides how Jesus calls Matthew. It's that Matthew wasn't suspicious about Jesus. Jesus calls him and he isn't suspecting a trap. That's actually highly noteworthy. Matthew doesn't suspect a trap when Jesus calls him because Jesus, he had seen him acting this way before. In fact, most likely, Matthew had been hoping Jesus would stop and talk to him. And you have to wonder, those of us who've been Christians for a while, would the same be true about people outside of our church? Are people on your street hoping, hoping that we'll stop and talk to them? If we invited them over to our house, might they be suspicious about our ulterior motives? Or is it consistent with the sort of people we are, loving and caring for those around us always? The question is this, does your Christian faith facilitate your relationship with people outside of the church, with skeptics, with doubters? Or does your Christian faith get in the way? Followers of Jesus, like Jesus, are consistently humble and compassionate and approaching, approachable. Third, consider, Jesus lived in Palestine. He walked around Capernaum, and on this day, he stopped at that tax booth. You and I are called to be for and aware of the people and places in which we live, walk, work, go to school, to be involved in our community, to see the people in the tax booth. It's this question, who is before you this day? Matthew was before Jesus at that moment. That's who we are called to. Jesus came. Jesus came as the physician for the sick, as the savior for sinners. And I want us to see something. Jesus doesn't merely accept them as they are. He calls them to turn and trust in him. You see this with Matthew. To put it another way, Jesus came not to approve of people's lives, but to resurrect their deadness, to give them an altogether new sort of life. And he doesn't just look at our failures or our neediness. See, Jesus doesn't overlook our failures and neediness either. Jesus deals with our brokenness. He bears our sin. He dies for us. 700 years before Jesus walked, Isaiah the prophet wrote about Jesus. He said, Jesus was rejected and despised. Jesus suffered and sorrowed. Jesus was stricken, afflicted, crucified. Jesus doesn't just call Matthew to be okay as he is. Continue on with what you're doing. He calls him to a new sort of life, a life that can only be found in Jesus. You see, Jesus was rejected and despised so that we who are outcasts might be brought near. Jesus suffered and sorrowed so that we who are broken might be healed. And Jesus was stricken 
afflicted and crucified so we who are sinners might be forgiven. I love the picture of Jesus as he's calling Matthew because what I see in it is that Jesus can identify with us in our suffering in life, in our struggle, in our outcastness. And what he does here, as he calls each of us to do, is he offers his saving love and grace to all, to Pharisees and tax collectors, to those who have their life together, and to those of you whose life is a mess. But all alike, every one of us need to see our need of him and then rise and follow him. And that's what we're doing at this church. We're meeting Jesus, and we're following him. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for two years as a church, but more than that, we are thankful for 2,000 years of life and hope in Jesus Christ. God, give us eyes to see your love for us, that if we feel distant or far or outcast, to see in Jesus the kind of person who wants to bring us near. I pray that you would forgive us of our Pharisee tendencies and you would give us instead a heart like Matthew that responds with faith and trust and following. May Jesus be Lord in our lives and in this church. To his glory and honor we pray. Amen. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You It's my joy to honor.